I'm James, and this is Producing Fun, a podcast about making games from a product perspective. Welcome to the latest episode of Producing Fun. My guest today is well-known rulebook editor, content creator, and good friend, Paul Grogan of Gaming Rules. Paul is a true pillar of the UK board game community, and one of the hardest working people I know. From developing games to running conventions, from making videos to training demo teams, he's pretty much done it all. So I had to focus extra hard this week on keeping the conversation as focused as possible on just the topic that I wanted to pick his brains on, rule books. And what makes them great, and sometimes not so great. As I suspected, there was so much he had to say on this subject alone, it was very difficult to decide what to keep and what to cut this time. Paul's experience is beyond substantial. He has edited the rulebooks of games designed by some of the industry's biggest names. People like Vladja Shivatal, the designer of multiple runaway success titles as diverse as Codenames or Mage Knight. Or Vital Lacerda, whose heavy Euro games are often regarded as some of the very best in the genre. As, to use Paul's own description, a rulebook editor in all caps, his working relationship with these creators is really close. He's so trusted that he's become the exclusive editor of several top creators' work. As many as 100 rulebooks in, he really knows his stuff. If you are in any way interested in writing or editing a rulebook, I would strongly recommend you listen to this episode. Paul is a pleasure to listen to, but I can also say from personal experience of working with him on Magnate that his understanding of teaching games in multiple media in general is invaluable. He has a lot to say here, not only on the immediate practical challenges of structure and wording in rulebooks, but also on the broader perspective of how commercially important they are, and the increasing growth of new trends in games like built-in tutorials. We join the interview just as I've asked Paul how he got started as a rulebook editor. Well, thanks for inviting me on. I remember when you spoke to me about you were going to do this podcast before you did episode one, and it, it sounded like an interesting idea. So yeah, definitely. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Uh, so how I got into rulebook editing is by pure accident. Now, <laughs> when I answer this question, because I'm generally well known, patting myself on the back for being a fairly good rulebook editor. So a lot of people assume, oh, he must have like a degree in English. He's got professional qualifications. Right, none of that. None of that whatsoever. Um, when I, I, I mean, I'm a gamer. I've been a gamer since the 80s, right? I am a passionate gamer. It is my yeah. hobby. It's become a job, uh, you know, not through not through well no to say it's not through deliberate choice it was my choice to turn it into a career but it kind of happened accidentally because because i'm so passionate about the games what happened is about oh gosh when would it have been now what year are we in <laughs> uh, i think it's 2021 so i think I, it's been very confusing the last year it to has, work out exactly it has, how especially it has this been. week because it was a public holiday last weekend so i'm still confused as to what day of the week is oh 100 this, this was about 10 to 12 years ago when uh, my passion for games got to the point where I wanted to start doing things on a voluntary basis for some of the publishers that I love. Mm. So two publishers sprung to mind, Check Games Edition and Watch Your Game. Massive fan, bought every one of their games, loved their games. And I started uh, making, you know, going to see them at Essen every year and saying hello and everything else. And then I was like, look, I'm really interested. I love your games and I'm... I'm passionate about your games if there's anything I can do let, let me know and it was like well I, I guess we could you know send you our rule books that we're working on and you can help us out maybe with them and reading through and that's where it all started it was purely me 
wanting to give something back to the companies that I enjoyed working for. Ah, oh, interesting. So actually, yeah. that, so that, that's very interesting. So it wasn't necessarily that you had a, a kind of specific thing in mind that you really wanted to do for that company. Like, oh, my dream has always been to edit rule books. No. It was more like, how can I help? I yeah. think what you're doing is great. Yep. What so, can I do? So talking to them about their games, maybe even playtesting their games, you know, they, they'd send me the files. I'd print, I'd spend like, you know, three evenings printing out all of the tiles and all of the components. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then I'd get me friends around at a weekend. Now, this was all done on a voluntary basis because, you know, I had a well-paid full-time job. I was fine financially. And I was doing this because for me, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I've just got Vlaja's new game. He sent, he sent me a prototype of this game. Oh, let's literally spend about 12 hours printing it all out yeah. and invite me friends around and then feeding back to them. That's work, right? I was effectively doing work for them and feeding back all. I, I even went to conventions. I remember being at Bacon, uh, and um, which is a convention down in Exeter that happens every year. That's actually happening virtually this weekend. Starts today. Um, but I was at virtual. I, I was at the real Bacon with a physical prototype of Dungeon Pets the year before it came out, and I spent the whole weekend. Well, maybe not the whole weekend, but at least fifty percent of the weekend playing this game with people, demoing it to people and saying, this is a new CGE game that's coming later this year. Oh, this is from Vlaja who did Dungeon Lord. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I didn't get paid for any of that at uh, all. And, and they were very happy. I was very happy because I was working on Vlaja's latest game. And then eventually um, CGE sat down with me. And I think this is all down to Vlaja. Mm. But uh, Vlaja and the boss of CGE sat down with me. This is going back eight or nine years now, I think. And they said, Paul, you've been doing loads of work for us. Uh, you've been doing all of this. You've been doing demos at conventions. You've been helping us with our rule books. You've been helping play test games. You've been doing all of this. We can't let you carry on doing this if we're not going to pay you to do it because it's not fair. It's not fair on you. And I was like, uh, okay, sure. Yeah, if, if, you, want, if, if you want to. Um, and we, we basically made an agreement that I would track the hours that I spent working for them. Um, we agreed on a, a, an hourly rate for that. And then I carried on doing what I was doing, but I was also getting paid for it, which I had to declare as extra income. And I did it all above board and officially. And that's how it all started. Now, what happened following that is over the next couple of years, my professional career was uh, not working out for various reasons. Mm. And as I was starting to do more and more work and I was thinking, well, I'm passionate about games. I, I love games and now I'm actually sort of doing work in the games and I was enjoying doing the work because I was doing, you know, I was working on Vlogger's new game and I was, I was doing all of this stuff. Um, I thought, ah, I wonder if that I could actually maybe cut down on my work and maybe do more of this. Mm. And whilst at the same time, I've, I've always loved teaching people how to play games. I, you know, I was the one who in the 80s, Paul would get a new game, we'd all go around to Paul's house and Paul would teach us how to play a game. And in every gaming group that I've always been a member of, I was the one that taught people how to play games. And I actually loved the process of teaching people. You know, if I went to a convention for four days and spent all four days demoing games to people and didn't play anything, I'm really happy because I love, the, I love teaching people how to play games. So I came up with the idea of, because I've, I've, no, I've no background in creating videos or anything, right? No background in that whatsoever. I came up with the idea that I would create a YouTube channel where I create videos on how to play games. Makes sense, yeah. And a couple of people pointed out to me that this has already been done. Um, a couple of people have already done that. And I was like, oh, right, okay. I, I was unaware of that. 
But that's when I formed Gaming Rules, I did it with the intention of creating videos. That was the whole sole reason why Gaming Rules was formed is to create instructional videos. So it's much more focused purely on that element to begin with rather yes. than what it does today, which is your 50-50. Um, well, it's kind of a bit more well, than that. You've got, you've got videos. Yeah. Obviously edit rule books. Yeah. You also teach people how to, other people how to demo games, right? That's another part of what you do. It, it is, but that's a, that's a small part of what I do. Okay. Yeah. So, so the whole rule book editing, getting back to your original question, was because I was doing the videos, I was also doing bits of rule book work. And then the rule book work just more came in and then more came in and more came in. So we are now where we are in that a lot of people know Paul Grogan, Gaming Rules, he's that rule book mm, guy. Mm. And they don't realize I do videos as well. Every week I come across somebody who goes, oh, you also do videos. I thought you just did rule books. And it's like, whereas other people are like, oh yeah, he's the, he's, he's the video guy. I didn't know he did rule books. Yeah, I wear, yeah, yeah, <laughs> I wear these multiple sense. hats. So I yeah. fell into it accidentally. Um, and I, I've just I've just built up and built up and built up. And thankfully, uh, I've ended up working on some fairly high profile games, mm. which have then had a great reputation for having amazing rule books. Um, and that's that's obviously been been really good. But I have to say, a game that has an amazing rule book, if I was the editor of it, it's not just down to me. And we'll probably touch on this later on. It is a big team effort of everybody involved. And it isn't just, you can't just look at a rule book and go, this is an amazing rule book. Yeah. Who's the designer? Yeah. Right, no, because the designer usually has, yeah. actually, usually, I'm going to say, usually, <laughs> you're yeah. an exception, the designer <laughs> usually has nothing to do with the rule book. And the rule book is a big team effort of writer, editor, graphic designer, publisher, you know, a whole bunch of other people. Yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Well, the, definitely let's come back to that point because I'm really, really interested in that point about what makes a good rule book and kind of the team behind it because mm. yes yeah, your point i'm sure well spoilers there's gonna it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than just it's the editor or it's the yeah. designer um so, uh, so that's very interesting so how, how many rule books in total have you edited do you think oh now? gosh right rough finger in the air 60 to 100 60 to 100 maybe something like it really depends yeah. on where you look at editing yeah. right if, if you look at for example uh, on Mars by Vital Lacerda, okay? Most of that rule book is me. I wrote pretty much all of that rule book mm. and I was involved in that process from the start to the finish, right? Whereas there's another rule book, which you could say I edited, where actually I only probably did maybe two days of work on it. Yeah. Both of those rule books I'm down as the editor, but one of them took me about 10 to 15 hours and another one took me about 100 to 150 hours. Right. Um, so yeah. It's yeah, I, I, I've done I've done quite a lot. Uh, I am planning on cutting down. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think my my skill set is in the uh, the structure and the writing of complex games. I mean, I can do other mm. games as well, but bringing me into a rule book at the latter stages and then I read through it and I go, this structure is all completely wrong. And they go, well, I'm sorry, but the structure's all set. We've done the layout and we just want mm. you to proofread it. I'm like, well, mm. you've got the wrong person then. Because that's, you know, whilst I can do that, that's not really my area. So, yeah. So immediately that, that raises an interesting question for me, which is, have they actually not just got the wrong person? Have they made, have they made the wrong process decision about when to bring an editor in at all? If they're bringing them in that late, in your, in your opinion? 
possibly. Yeah, I mean that that rule book that I that I mentioned with with the bad structure could have mm. already had an editor because there are different types of editors out there. I, I always say that there's three types of editors. Oh, okay. There are editors with a lowercase e. There are editors with a capital E, and there are editors all in caps. <laughs> right? Okay. And I'm I'm the latter because I I know some editors that are, and this is not not meant as any disrespect to them, one up from proofreaders. Yeah, it's more like spelling and grammar. It's spelling and else. grammar, and they will check the occasional sentence, and they may make some suggestions, right? Then you've got the next level up of editing, where they'll they'll look at it in a bit more detail, and then you've got me and other people like me who look at your rule book mm -hmm. and go, no, no, I, you know. And and the reason I'm saying this is because a company about four years ago was a new company, and they had a rule book, and they posted on the various Facebook groups and social medias and said, tell us who the best rulebook editors are, or you know, give us your recommendations of rulebook editors because we need a rulebook editor for our new game, right? And then what they did is they contacted each of those people and I was one of those people they contacted and they contacted me for details of how I work, timescales, obviously uh, cost uh, and all sorts of things like that. And, he, and I got the gig, I got the job, but mm. they came back to me afterwards and they actually said to me, said, they said, Paul, we, we spoke to 50 different editors. 50. I mean, that's a huge amount of people. 50? Yeah. They, 50? they this is this is this is what I got told. They, they said they approached 50 editors and asked them the same questions they asked me. Every single other editor gave them a price based on word count. Oh, I, I didn't. Interesting. I didn't. I gave them a price based on my hourly rate and I said and I will work within your budget and within your limit obviously if you gave me a hundred page rule book and said Paul you've got five hours to do it I'll say no um, yeah, but yeah what, quite reasonably so <laughs> yeah but if you say Paul yeah. you're limited to 20 hours yeah. of work I'm not going to then invoice them for 50 hours of work yeah so and I was the only editor in the 50 that they approached that gave them a price based on time spent rather than word and that is because I can't give you a price based on word because I don't know. Your rule book might be good and just need some minor tweaks, or it literally might need completely restructuring, tearing apart, whole sections being moved around, and a, and a massive mm. rewrite. And I I can't, I I don't know that until I've actually started reading and working on it. So I, this is this is really fascinating to me because um, one of the, the sort of trends I've seen a little bit within the board game world is treating board games like books. Right. So, so I noticed, for example, Osprey Games, when they were recently, uh, well, actually, maybe two years ago now, they were advertising for someone to join the business. They called, they had a role which they called game editor. Yes. And I thought that was weird to me because I don't think a game can be edited. And obviously, you know, what this podcast is about product. I come from a kind of uh, a software product management background. And so when I'm looking at a game, I'm thinking, well, we're trying to overall craft this um, marketable experience for people. And the thought that it that it, it looks like a book editing where you're trying to preserve the authorial voice of, of like an individual, let's say like a novelist, um, it doesn't it doesn't resemble that role. But it seems like, as with the rule book editing, there's this sort of interesting trend amongst some organisations to see it in the terms of this is text that's been produced that we're editing, which is almost it doesn't seem to me like that's your approach at all. No. You're looking at it from the point of view of, would it be fair to say, um, this object is what helps people learn the game. Yeah. 
So you're looking for how can I maximize the effect of, uh, of, of how good this is at teaching the game? Potentially then it, it doesn't even necessarily, the fact that it is a book rather is secondary. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's interesting because game, I mean, Osprey games, I know people who work at Osprey. I'm friends with some of them and they are one of my clients. I do do some work for right. them. Okay, so I'm, I'm curious about this because game editor, I, I'm thinking, well, what is that role? I, I'm, I'm yeah. right after this, right after we finish this, I am going to speak to my contact at Osprey and say, are you that person? Are you, are you a game editor? Yeah. Because if it is who I think it is, yeah, they do game development, but they also help with the rule books. Interesting. So it, it's two hats because game a game developer and somebody who helps write and edit rule books are different skill sets, but that could be the same person. Yeah. Because I do game development as well. So yeah, that see that I find that really fascinating because it seems like we're all working on uh fundamentally the same roles yeah is fundamentally what we're doing but yeah that's a really interesting one that's that's one definitely one to to, to explore uh, explore more i think because understanding what the roles are is to me really fascinating the point of view of what you're trying to achieve yeah so that makes a lot of sense and in the same way that you know it seems like your your rule book editing interest has emerged much more from your very long-lived passion for teaching games rather than because you know you really enjoy the kind of the process of like editing documents you oh, know, I, God, i've no. got right right because <laughs> hate that I, right I, I can i can understand it right because it's really interesting is that you know i have a friend of mine she's a, an editor for a national newspaper uh, a sub editor and so actually she loves just crafting text right like that's that's very much like what the bit that she and she's exceptional at it but it strikes me that it's 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 coming from a, even though there might be an overlap of skills, it's coming from a slightly different place. Yeah, I have no interest in that whatsoever. My, my, my passion is, and I have this, every time I'm working on, you know, I'm, I'm helping right now Chip Theory Games with the rule book for Burn Cycle. Chip Theory Games are one of my favorite companies, love what they do. And as I'm sat there editing the rule book, I'm thinking, it's midnight, I really should go to bed, I feel awful. But I'm thinking, this rule book is going to get printed and it's going to get into people's hands and they're going to read these rules for awareness and they're going to look at the examples that I've written with the images that I've written and they're going to go, I get that. And they are going to be able to play yeah. that game. And I know that. And that that is pumping through my veins, which is why I can't sleep at night because I'm like, but it's exciting. And this is why, um, you know, working on some of the you know, Vital Lacerda, for example, right? Me, me and Vital have become friends over the years, and I'm now known as the people who, the, the person who writes his rule books, right? Mm -hmm. Well, prior to this, I I was a fan of his games. Mm. I, I was a fan of Vital Lacerda's games before I even started working for him. <clears throat> so now we're in the situation where I, I, I'm lucky enough in a way, though it's not luck, I, I made my own luck, but, you know, I feel very happy about the fact that I'm now working directly with him <clears throat> and we will be having arguments at two o'clock in the morning about whether she was, something should be worth two points or one point. And, and it's like, <laughs> you know, this is my life now, yeah. but yeah. I wouldn't change it for the world. Because um, yeah. if you'd have said to me 10 years ago, you're going to be, Paul, you're going to be writing Vital Lacerda's rule books. I'd be like, yeah, get away. You know, yeah. <laughs> where, where do you get that from? Yeah, yeah. How would, that, how, would that, how would that happen? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I have no interest in the actual technicalities of uh, of, of writing text or anything like that it, it, mm. it's because i'm coming from people are going to get this rule book and people are going to be able to learn how to play from the rule book so yeah very interesting very interesting so i get that but prompts another question from my point of view on, on this in terms of the the role of the different people in the process which i guess this is a good opportunity to get into that yeah 
should then the graphic design of the rule book be managed more under ideally your watch because i think that raises cuz cuz the objective of the graphic design is to make the rule book usable but you don't obviously do the graphic design yourself yeah. in in kind of paul's ideal world of what is the best structure for tackling rule book editing yep would you have yourself as the boss of the rule book graphic designer in an ideal world hmm i guess yes but the way that it normally works is that i will work on the rule book in google docs right mm. i will i will work exclusively in google docs at the start add images and add notes and add comments and everything else then it goes off to the graphic designer however i always want to be involved in that process okay mm. there yep. is only i think maybe two rule books that i've worked on where i did the text and then it disappeared and i didn't see it again now that made me oh, uncomfortable because it's my name as the editor i wrote the text and when that rule book left me and went to graphic designer who knows what they did because you're absolutely right the, the actual layout and the graphic design is so important you know if that call out box is on the wrong page or in the wrong section or they didn't bold the headings enough uh, or or they used the wrong you know title for a particular section so it looked like a subsection and it was actually a big new you know all that sort of stuff or worst case the graphic designer goes well i couldn't fit these rules onto that page so i've moved them onto page 23 no Ooh, you know yeah so as soon as as yeah. soon as a rule book leaves my my area and goes to a graphic designer if i never see it again that 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 is not something that i choose to do and in fact all of the rule books that i'm working on right now whilst i'm not in charge of the graphic designer the graphic designer is you know working for the publisher and they're working to their things i'm involved in that process so i yeah. will be able to say you know I, I won't be able to say change the font i don't like it mm. Mm. but i i will be able to say uh that that the arrow on that image is not clear it needs to be pointing a bit more mm. this way and things like that because images and examples i i want i want to see the entire rule book holistically as 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 a product and not just mm. words in it but also the examples where things are and and everything else so yeah i i do like to be involved in in that final bit well it makes a tremendous amount of sense because the layout to me seems like it is equally important to the text like if, if you have the layout if you just had the text and the layout is very poor or the layout can actually surely detract from the text oh, by implying things that are yes. that yeah. are, are wrong oh, yeah. I, i've seen some uh, there was a rule book which somebody linked because i because i'm known now for for, for being the rule book guy people mm. tag me in on on facebook posts when they've they've read a bad rule book they just go oh i've just read a rule book for such and such a game it was really awful shame they didn't hire paul grogan now that is very very flattering yeah what it means bet. is that my yeah. facebook feed is like oh somebody's mentioned a and and suddenly my brain is like oh i must go and have a look at this rule book now and suddenly oh I, god i'm yes. now looking at a rule book for a game that i have no interest in whatsoever <laughs> and i'm looking at it and i'm going oh yeah and and one of the ones that i saw last month and it was very, very simple. It doesn't matter how good the text is. They'd gone with a two-column approach because it's, it's an A4 or letter size rule book, which is fine. That, that's normal. But what they'd done is they broke the sections up vertically but didn't have dividers in between the sections. So you were reading down the left column, as you do, and then when you finish the left column, you switch to the right column. 
But actually what they've done is you go down the left column and then that actually continues about a third of the way down the page. That's the end of that section. And then it continues on the right column of that. top, And it was like, it was almost oh. unreadable. You, you oh, just no. could not follow it. And that was simply, uh, and I'm, and I'm going to be rude here, it was an unskilled graphic designer who mm. just copied and pasted the text into InDesign, changed it to two columns, split it up into the various sections, but didn't actually think through putting graphical dividers between the sections. So you were reading it and it, it just, yeah, it just didn't, didn't flow properly. And that's nothing to do with the structure of the rule book. The guy who did the, the text, fine, that was fine. But when it goes to layout, it, it was just, yeah, it was, it was a nightmare. Yeah. This is to me, not that different to the way that graphical user interface design works in software. Yeah which is that you have to make it navigable as your first priority. And obviously there are certain conventions about how we read books. The way that we read them is that we read one column and then the next column. And if you work against that convention, it, it then it's going it to work. It's going to be very hard to navigate. Yeah. Um, so there's got to be a really exceptional reason when you break those conventions. And it strikes me that this is, this is a, a real problem. All right, so then that's interesting. The other part of this though, and I remember we've had a couple of conversations about this previously, that there is a um, also a, a boundary which seems to be somewhat soft to me between the rulebook usability and then the usability of aspects of the game as well. Yes. Like, for example, iconography. Yes. Which I know is something we've discussed in some games yep. that you've worked on. Yeah. So, um, what role do you think the rulebook editor can proactively play in putting into iconography and user interface design of game board elements, for example? Generally speaking, none. Ah, okay. Generally speaking, right? If you were wanting to design a game and you needed a rule book and you went onto these social media forums and said, you know, recommend me some rule book editors and you find one and you hire them as a rule book editor, you're going to get rule book editing. Mm. That, that's what you're going to get. And a lot of rule book editors would not feel comfortable if they were looking at a rule book and looking at a game and they went, oh, these icons aren't very clear. Mm. They're not going to say anything because yeah. they've been hired to be a rule book editor. Yeah. And, you know, if you hired a third party to be a rulebook editor and you didn't know them and they would, you know, it's like it's like hiring a guy to come around and paint your wall. And he went, uh, yeah, you know, you know, that 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 set of um, hanging baskets you've got there. Yeah, well, mm. I, they don't really look right. And you're like, <laughs> look, look, mate, just just paint the wall. Right. I'll give you your money and you disappear. Yeah. Now, yeah. I'm in the fortunate position that. I can't keep my mouth shut. Uh. <laughs> and the people I work with know that I can't keep my mouth shut. So I, I'm a little different. If I see icons that aren't clear, I say something because I can't not. But I don't expect other rulebook editors to do that. And, I, and I'm very sorry if you're a rulebook editor and you're listening to this and you do comment on iconography where you think it's not clear. Yeah. Great. And, and please do that. Because to be honest, if, if I was in the position of the the designer of the game or anything else i want that feedback what i don't want is i don't want people to think oh i think there's a problem here but it's not my position to say something so i'm not going to say something right I, i'm always this is one reason why i no longer have a full-time job and i'm employed by somebody else is i will always speak my mind and i will always <laughs> i will always say when i think something is wrong or or could be improved um and thankfully going back to vital you know me vital lacerda and Eno tool Ian O'Toole gets all of the credit for all of the iconography and all of the graphic design on the game. And to be honest, he deserves 95% of it. Yeah. But then there's me 
and a couple of other people going, oh, that one would look better if you just move that little bit to the right and added a bit more fading on it. And oh, yeah, I'll do that. So, um, yeah, it, it's it's all a big shared team effort. But as far as your question about iconography being usable, you could have the best rule book in the world. But if your iconography is not clear or, you know, things are just not in the right place on the board, mm. people are going to not they'll read the rule book and they'll be like, right, I now know how to play. And then they'll come to play it and they'll be like, oh, wait a minute, this isn't intuitive. You know, I'm, I'm doing something over here and it's, it's actually affecting something over the other side of the board. Well, you know, and people like me and you will be looking at that and going, well, why didn't they just put that track next to this one? Yeah, you exactly. Know, and things like that. Or why isn't, there an, why isn't there an up arrow icon here, here reminding you that whenever you do something in this area, the share price goes up by one or something mm. like that. And it's little things like that. Um, and as I say, for, for me, because I can't keep my mouth shut, but also I am a game developer. I do game development for some companies. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I find it very difficult when I've got that sort of thing to suggest. So I always make sure if somebody hires me as a rulebook editor, I say, are you okay with me making any suggestions about the gameplay of the game or would you like me to just not say anything and just edit the rule book? And always they say, no, if you've got any thoughts on it, let, let us know. Okay, um, interesting. So I always do. But I, I usually check yeah. beforehand. Yeah, that well, that makes a tremendous amount of sense that you would you would check beforehand because I can see that some people would feel uh yeah they, they were very precious right i mean and that, that mm -hmm. can't be something which which you're a stranger to nope. people getting very precious about things being done in a very particular way yeah. um that that's been my experience in general working with lots of different people who are uh designers especially uh they tend to be they can get very precious about some things and they, they they're not prepared always to yeah. to give up on their not so great ideas yeah but i mean obviously you've had the experience of working with some of the top designers in in board games in general, do they tend to be uh, sometimes a bit precious or do they tend to be pretty good at giving up on their some of their w worst ideas? It depends on the person. Okay, interesting. It depends on the person. And the other thing as well is confrontation always makes me uncomfortable. I am not mm. good with confrontation, right? Having confrontational discussions about rules of a game I mean, confrontational is probably the wrong word, but mm. it's, 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 it's disagreements. It's like forthright disagreement, right? Yeah, I guess is one right. Way to put it. With people who I'm a fan of. And, and let, let's go. Let's say Vlaja Shavatov. Let's say Vital Lacerda. Let's say Richard Breeze. These are heroes in the game industry. These are well-known popular designers. And I'm having arguments with them sometimes. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and it makes me feel really uncomfortable. But again... I speak my mind and I, and I say something. And some of the, the great thing is, um, is that, and, and the reason why I carry on doing it is because I feel that I have helped. Even if I say, I played the game a couple of times. I don't like the way these work. It feels a bit unthematic, et cetera. I, you know, I'll have that. And they'll go, what are you talking about, Paul? You don't know what you're on about, this, that, and the other. And I'll be like, right, that's, that's, that's fine. I, I've said my bit. And they've made they've they've said no for whatever reason, but sometimes they go oh yeah, and the change gets made, and and that's why I keep on doing it. I don't win all of the arguments, but 
going back to the the 2am conversation with Vital Lacerda this this is a classic this is from about two years ago but there was a there was a particular part of on Mars and it was about two or three in the morning and there I was in bed on the iPad and we were having this back and forth about this particular thing and I felt he was getting a little bit angry he probably wasn't he was probably just tired and the language barrier and things like that and I was reacting to that <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then yeah. we, we just agreed to you know call it a night because it's three o'clock in the morning and we'll go to bed we'll sleep on it I got up the next morning there was a net there was a message from him to say Paul I've had a think about it and you're right we're going to go with your change to rule. <laughs> and it's like right now I, I don't win all of my arguments with Vittel but yeah. that's why I persist because sometimes I'm onto something yeah, and sometimes yeah. I can make the designer look at it again and think about it from a different angle and then and then review it so again we're talking about different roles here it is not normally the role of a rulebook editor to be having those kind of discussions with the designer. But I'm fortunate in that the position that I'm in, especially with Vittel, who I've been working with now for like five years, this is just how we work together. He, that, that's, that's just how it is. And we're doing exactly the same now on Weather Machine. Um, and, and one of my rule suggestions that I put in about three weeks ago, um, he liked the idea of it. He's made that change. But then he said, unfortunately, I've now had to add five more components to the game. Uh, and we now need a way of tracking whether yeah, the yeah. component is face up or face down. But that change got made into the game. And, and, yeah. I can, I, I, and this is the thing. With most of the games I've worked on, I can look at the game and I can look at a little bit of it and go, oh, that was me, my bit. You know? I, I, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, on, yeah. On, on Zulkin, on the... Oh, God, which, which wheel is it? One of the wheels of Zulkin... The last space on one of the wheels, there's a not equals to sign. That's my not equals to sign. Oh, right? fantastic. Because yeah. I said, and this is this is going back a long time now, I said, I think that is too powerful if you allow a player to move up on the same god track twice with that action. And they all thought about it and they went, yeah, you're right. And they put a not equals to sign on it. And, it right, and then that makes it clear in the game that you can't do that. Basically. It's two different god tracks. Yeah. Right. And it, okay. it's, it's, it's little things like that. And that, if we go back to my passion for games, yeah, this is why I carry on doing what I'm doing because yeah, it's just yeah. it's so it's so rewarding, and it, it it's it's the unsung heroes. I mean, you've had you've got it with Magnate. You you are the designer of Magnate, but how many people have you been working with over the last couple of years on that project that have influenced? some of the rules to make them better in one way or the other. I'll, I'll, I'll count, countless. Exactly. I think the thing is, it's already the case, because it's quite a complex project, it's already the case that when I look at the credits for it, it's like the end of a Marvel movie. Yeah. Like a little, a little, <laughs> a little bit already. But, but actually, if I, if I included uh, all of the people that have contributed in some way by just having a bright idea or at a play test yeah. or something, uh, it really would be like the end of a Marvel movie with like the, all the technical credits of the massive SFX teams and things like that. It would, it would be... A, it would be um and um yeah you are completely the team effort thing is fascinating would you say then that it would probably repay rulebook editors in general to have a bit of developer experience um well it's helped me because it's helped me see things from a different angle and it, it's like going back to graphic designers mm. right there's graphic designers and there's graphic designers who are gamers and if you are going to get a graphic designer to do the layout of your rule book, try to get somebody who is a gamer because the end yeah. product will be far better, right? Because they, 
They're a gamer. They've read rule books. They know how example images work. They know, oh yeah, we need an image of a card and we need, we need an arrow pointing to the bottom bit of text and we need to draw a circle around. The, they know that. Whereas I've worked with some graphic designers who are not gamers and it was painful because yeah. their graphic design skills are good, but they don't actually know. So I, in one case, I literally had to create my own images for them in Photoshop, right? Very rough images and say, look, this is the image we need. Go and make it look nice. Yeah. And all it was was here's a picture of a card with an arrow pointing to where the armor is. Right. Yeah. Completely. And saying, for example, this unit has four armor. They they weren't able. I mean, they were a bit stubborn. But I, I've seen other rule books done by people who were graphic designers who aren't rule book people. And it yeah, it's just so yeah. I think I think having multiple hats, have having multiple angles, all all helps the situation. Uh, and again. You, you mentioned that I demo games at, at, at conventions, you know, and I do a lot of that. I do a lot of teaching games in person to people. That helps the rulebook writing skills. Yeah, Creating the videos helps the rulebook writing. All of the different aspects of my job all feed into each other. Uh, and they're all, I mean, all of them are all around teaching games. So there is definitely a complementary element to each part of the job. Yeah. And that makes complete sense again, kind of bringing it back to what you said about being uh, an editor in all caps because actually that is about that, that kind of total view of, of how games are taught. So in general then, do you think rule books are getting better or not? I mean, obviously outside of your rule books, obviously you put the tremendous effort into making them really excellent, but uh, I'm thinking about it from this very holistic perspective, but is that true in general? That rule yes books and no. Better? Yes and no, interesting. It's, it, is, it is a really interesting one. Um, and I have multiple things to say about this because some people think that a bad rule book will kill a game. Mm. And there's been evidence of that, right? There has been evidence of games that could have been huge, popular, amazing games, but the rule book was so bad. It was such a barrier to entry. People just weren't able mm. to actually play it, right? And there's a couple which I... I I don't know whether I should mention them or not, but people probably know which ones I'm talking about. And then there are other games that come out with bad rule books, but are hugely popular and sell millions. Mm. And it's like, hmm, well, hang on a minute. <laughs> um, you know, people, people have said that the Terraforming Mars rule book isn't that good. Okay, now the Terraforming Mars rule book is okay. It's not good. Well, maybe it's good, but it's not great. It's right. certainly not the yeah. best rule book I've read, but Terraforming Mars has sold millions. The, the state of the rule book for that game has not held back the sales of the game at all. Interesting. Whereas there are other games where the reputation of the rule book absolutely condemned the game to the bargain bin within six months. And it, it's fascinating how you get these things because you're like, oh, well, there, there's the evidence. There's the evidence that rule books, right, they've got to, right, they've got to be good, yeah, otherwise yeah, this yeah. happens. And then you get other games that come out with not good rule books that still seem to do well. There's also, what's very interesting is what the Spiel des Jahres committee said, not last year, but the year before, which when I read it, I tell you what, I had a naked dance around the garden. I was saying, <laughs> um, because the Spiel des Jahres committee for those people who don't know, the Spiel des Jahres is a, the German Game of the Year award. In, in our hobby or industry, 
of awards, this is the most prestigious one. Now, yeah. the Spiel des Jahres Award generally goes to what the committee feel is the best overall game, and it is very much weighted towards family games. Mm. Uh, it didn't used to be, but it, but it is now, and that's fine. But they made a, a statement, and they said that if your rulebook for your game is not of a good enough quality, we are not going to consider it for the Spiel des Jahres Award. Mm. And I was jumping and jumping for joy because I can bang on about how rule books need to be better. And it makes nobody listens. Nobody cares, right? Yeah. There's a publisher out there who's going, well, we don't care about Paul Grogan. We're not going to listen to what he says, right? But the Spiel des Jahres mm. committee saying it, suddenly publishers have to, have to pay attention. Now Suddenly that's, this, is, this is pressure, it's right? Pressure. It's applying pressure that... Yeah means that if potentially you you make a crappy rule book, then you for 100% know your game isn't getting nominated. Yes. Now, yeah. it, you know, if you've, if you've designed, you know, Magnate, for example, is mm. never going to get nominated for the Spiel des Jahres. Mm. That's yeah. just, you know, that's just how it is because oh. it doesn't fit into that category. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. Um, so, it, so, for example, you're, you don't need to worry about that mm. in terms of, oh, I've got to make sure my rule book's good. You know, if you've designed a five-hour heavy complex Euro game, you go, oh, I've got to make sure my rule book's good. Otherwise, the Spiel des Jahres committee are not going to look at it. No, they're, they're not going to look at it anyway. But, yeah, so in, in some respects, rule books are getting better. There are a number of publishers who have, over the years, improved their rule books. Now, in my opinion, they should have done it sooner. In my mm. opinion, if you are a publisher and you've spent a year in the industry and you've made three games and all of your rule books haven't been good, you need to do something. Yeah. Some of those publishers took four or five years before they eventually caved in and decided to start improving their rule books. Because you can. It, it's just time. It's the right people and it's money. That, that's what it takes to do a good rule book. Um, and some publishers have and some, some publishers have been doing better and better rule books. Other publishers haven't. Other mm. publishers are still producing rule books which are mediocre at best, and that's disappointing to see. Mm. Um, but there are some other publishers who are still out there producing awful rule books and are showing no signs of even wanting to improve. Mm. Um, and Kickstarter, Kickstarter is a whole separate thing, but there are so many games that come out on Kickstarter with, well, look at this artwork, look at these minis. Right, yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it's just made 1.5 million, funded in 9.3 seconds. And then the game comes out and the rulebook's terrible. And the game sold, you know, it made half a million or yeah. more. And it, that's, I can see why. Because if you put a Kickstarter up for a game and when this game contains a really good rulebook, right, it's well, not going to fund. Yeah. But if you say, look at these fancy minis, look at these, look at these nice artwork and all of this, like, that's what sells. So a good rule book isn't going to sell your game, mm. but it is going to make it because because if you've got the, 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 you know, if you've spent three years designing a game and you've got these miniatures and you've got this artwork and you've got a brilliant game and you've got 100 scenarios and you make two million on Kickstarter. Right. Fantastic. From a business point of view, you can buy your helicopter and, and you're happy. But. <laughs> The game then gets out there on people's shelves and all of the backers get it and nobody's playing it. No. Now, for me, I'm not a games designer. I'm not a publisher. Of course, I'd want to make a million and buy a helicopter. Mm. But I'd also want my game to be sat on people's gaming tables and being played. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. So as a, as a designer, I would hate the fact that I've spent two or three years designing a game and it's out there and nobody's playing it 
not because the game's bad, but because they can't learn how to play the game. Well, ultimately, you've not made a game. You've just made a collector's object. Right. Right. At that point. Yeah. So, until, until a fan comes out and rewrites the rule book for you, which yeah. will, will happen. <laughs> well, so, so, and, and that's, so that's really interesting, isn't it? So the so first thing is that, yeah, that makes total sense to me. What we're saying is, is that um, rule books are more like a hygiene factor in the sense that they aren't necessarily the thing that will move the needle from a commercial perspective. And yep. in fact, you've got these really interesting examples of you've got games which have been had terrible rule books, but still been very successful. Yes. Um, but if that might be um, that they're very successful in spite of their bad rule books. Yeah. And it could easily be that actually if the rule books had also been good, it's quite possible those games might've been even more successful, yes. right? Because actually what drove their success was something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, true. So, um, so that, yeah, and, and this, to me, I mean, this, this question, it has to be good because you want to reduce the friction for people to play it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you the barrier to, to entry is the rule book. And it doesn't, I mean, this, this is the problem, I guess, it's very hard to prove commercially, but I would have expected that the more people that learn your game more quickly and play it more quickly, the more quickly that they tell other people to play it. Yeah. And the kind of slow motion viral pattern that all yeah. board games follow would, would just be accelerated, right? Yeah. Wouldn't it? I hope I hope so. Yeah. I, I hope so. I mean one of the one of the rule books that I've been working on for the last six months is Batman Gotham City Chronicles. Right, yeah. Games. Yeah. And I hope they don't mind me talking about this, but the rule book for that game was not very well received. And that is mm, oh, that I is the this, classic this, yeah. example of a game yeah. which made a huge amount of money on Kickstarter. And I know dozens and dozens of people, if not hundreds of people, who have this game. They backed it on Kickstarter. Yeah. And they tried playing it and they failed to learn how to play from the rulebook and they put it back in the box. And I know this because I am now a member of the Batman Gotham City Chronicles Facebook groups and I have right. been for the last six months. And people know I've been working on the rulebook. And that's how many people have told me. We have yeah. this game, Paul. We, we've got this game. We bought it. We tried playing it. We couldn't decipher the rule book. We put it back in the box. But now we know there's going to be a new rule book. We'll wait. And when the new rule book comes out, and it's really interesting from a company point of view, mm. because what Monolith have done is they've, they've hired me to basically completely and utterly rewrite their rule book. Sure, they're going to be going on Kickstarter and launching it. They're going to launch it again. And they've realized they need a better rule book in order to do that. Mm. But they also want the people who've already bought the game to be able to play it. Mm. because they made the money from it they're now reinvesting that money back in now they didn't need to they could have said right batman let, let's just write that game off right that we, we made it it made us loads of money people can't play it apart from the fans that have really invested the time and effort but let's just leave it there but they didn't they've gone back in and said no 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 we we, we need to actually support this game and, and 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 do that um so that you know that's 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 one aspect of it because sometimes a publisher will just step away from a game and and, and write it off and it's finished and then and uh, you know then then they're done with it so yeah it's, it, it's it's that barrier to entry and i and i've had this now you know 15 years ago or maybe even 10 maybe 10 to 15 years ago uh if i got a game that i was like oh this looks like a kind of game that i'd like and we start mm. reading it and like oh no this rule book's really bad and i can't work out this and this doesn't make sense and this is contradictory and whatever i would spend days of my life browsing the forums talking to other people mm. asking questions and everything else i'd put in all of that effort i'd then create my own faq i'd then create player aids with you know and i'd do that all so i could play the game because yeah. that's the kind of person i am was yeah. now yeah. 
now my my impatience my tolerance for bad rule books has gone down if i now get a game like that and i start reading the rule book now and if within an hour i'm like and, and i'm not saying oh i'm very sorry but the structure of this rule book isn't good enough i'm not going to even bother i'm talking about you start reading it something's not explained something contradicts something else this isn't there that's not there i'm like no i'll tell you what i'll go and play one of the other 300 games that i've got in my collection yeah um, i actually just don't don't bother now so for me a bad rule book is a barrier to entry and would stop me playing the game um, so do you think this has been then your, your job to some extent has been an influence over your changing kind of yes. tastes in games over yeah, time absolutely because i have more respect as a gamer for the publishers who take the time and effort to do things as i think they now should have done yeah. Rather than just the people who put in minimal effort and just hope that that will be okay. It's like, no, I've, I've, I've no time for them and I've no time for their games now. And, 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 you know, even if people say, oh yeah, the game's great. You just really, really need to spend, you know, a week <laughs> learning it and browsing, you know, yeah. when, when the FAQ is bigger than the actual original rule book. Oh God. Yeah. Fans have rewritten the entire rule. I'm like, no, no, the publisher should have done that, you know? And then you've got other publishers who are really going to every effort possible to make sure the rule book's good and you know all of that lot well they're the ones that i want to you know be interested in yeah completely well i mean there's just so much that exists now yeah that doesn't seem like a tremendous reason to be able to put that amount of effort in because as you said like there's, there's so many other games that have done that job they've yeah. kind of respected the customer in that sense and then the, the, the game is also equally good yes so why wouldn't you pick that game yeah. rather than the one that's going to be a huge pain to learn yeah uh this is very interesting there's a, there was a piece of research on bgg that tried to work out whether or not rule books in general were getting better by the size of the faq threads which is kind of like nah. i don't think it doesn't sound like that would work in no your view. because the the number of users of bgg has gone up the number of people using mm. bgg has gone up and if you look at some of the rule books, which uh, are, in my opinion, extremely good rule books, there are pages and pages and pages of FAQ uh, because people are lazy. And a lot of the, if you look at the uh, the rules forums for games which have really good rule books, generally the replies to those forums are it's on page seventeen, or right. you know yeah. they will say, or it, it, it's because. And this is another interesting topic that I don't know if we want to go down this route, but there is a difference between a bad rule book and a complex game. And I know so oh, many people. I absolutely they... do want to go down this route. <laughs> like, cause that seems very critical to me that the meeting point of actual rules yeah. and the rule book is just critical. Yeah. There are so many people who will go, Oh yeah. The rule book for game X is really bad. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. The rule book for game X, is an extremely good rule book. Everything is in there. There's no contradictions. It's in a good structure. There's no missing rules. It's all there. It's all fine. Mm. The game is just really complex. And therefore, yeah. you are going to have a hard time learning how to play that game, even though the rule book's a good rule book. Right, yeah. Because it's a complex game and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to forget things. But Great Western Trail, in my opinion, whilst the rule book might not be perfect, it's one of the best rule books for a complex game I've read. Mm. I was a I read I read the rule book 
for Great Western Trail. I was then able to play Great Western Trail and teach other people how to play and had no questions whatsoever in the game that weren't covered in the rulebook. Everything that cropped up in the game was in the rulebook. Therefore, that rulebook served its purpose. It taught me how to play the game and I didn't have any questions afterwards. And there, there are pages and pages and pages of questions on there about, well, what, what happens if you do this? Well, that. You know, it's in it's in the rule book. It is there. It's not hidden. Yeah, it's there in a big red it? box. So, so yeah. So a quantitative analysis wouldn't even help you solve that problem in no. terms of analysing it because of the problem that it's the nature of the replies. It's, it's all confounded by all of these issues of, of that more popular games will just have more responses. Exactly. People yep. often don't even bother to look necessarily yep. in the detail of the rule book to be like, oh, actually, this is even covered in a specific in rule book yep. FAQ or something like that. Yeah. So it's basically not amenable to that kind of analysis. Yep. Basically, even one um, of the rule books that I've written recently for a game which is which is just come out backers have just got hold of a game which i worked on the rulebook for i mean i worked on the rulebook like months ago but you know backers are now getting their copies of it yeah. uh, and one of them uh well so, some of them are patreon supporters of mine and he sent me a message through slack he said i hope you don't mind paul but i found a few missing things in the rulebook and i said well please let me know because i want to improve all of the time yeah. yeah and he was like yeah 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 so so the, the concept of there's a few things that refer to the level of a card mm. okay and at no point do you actually mention anywhere in the rule book what the level of a card is or where it is? And I'm like, <laughs> I'm panicking. Uh, and then later he came back to me and went, oh, no, 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 no. It's all right. I found a big blue box right on the page that says, here's what the level <laughs> of the card is. And I'm like, Phew. right. But yeah, it's interesting because I'm, tr I'm trying to work out psychologically. He didn't, when he was reading through it, he didn't see that blue box. He, yeah, he didn't yeah. see that big box saying, this is the level of a card. And that's exactly the kind of question you'll get on BGG is somebody will go, oh, I, I, I've done this ability and it says that I score two points per level of my yellow cards. What is the level of a card? And some of the replies will be, it's in the blue box on page 11. And they'll go, oh yeah, and, th and that's it. The rule book was fine. It was there. It was just some people, some people miss it. So most probably, if, if there was anything that could have been improved about it, it would be something around the graphic design, probably of how it was positioned. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Call-out boxes are a difficult thing to get right because some people mentally ignore them. Yeah. Uh, but you, you can't interrupt your flow of text yeah. with side information. It, it's a tricky thing to get right, but yeah. Yeah. That, I think that, that, that that's something I, I've noticed quite a bit in terms of reading things is that I tend to, if anything feels like it's sort of like additional notes or you yeah. might like to know, my brain just goes, nope, right. and just ignores it. And it has to be something that's like a red with like a strong icon on yeah. it or something that's like, do not skip this. Yeah. Tends to be the only thing that I will pick up. So um, uh, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's very interesting um, considering that. Well, I mean, the question of complex games versus rule books raises an immediate question for me, and it's one that I thought about a lot during the development of Magnate, is that are there just some rules that are just simply less amenable to explanation? Yes, and I'm working on one this morning. Ah, and he's driving okay, me yeah, crazy. Yeah. And I'm trying to convince the publisher to change the rule. And I had a discussion with them at about 10 o'clock last night, and they said they're not going to change the rule because it causes balance issues. So unfortunately, it's a very difficult concept. And I said, well, this might end up with a, an entire page of examples Mm. to explain this particular concept in this game and they said well that that's your job paul you, you, you here's the rule you now need to explain this as clear as possible how you do that is up to you and i've gone all oh, right okay and it's a 
it's one of those ones where if I was sat with you right now and I had the board in front of you, I could say, look, this piece here, you see, it moves to here and then there's this. Right, I can't do that in a rule book. No. Right. No. I have to I have to do it with still images and text. And it's yeah, it's it's a concept which I'm I'm wrangling with this afternoon. <laughs> so that's an interesting subtlety, isn't it? So there's the question of is the rule just difficult to explain? Yeah. There's the question of is the rule difficult to explain in the given medium? So, for example, mm -hmm. in a text document, and then there's the rule of is the rule just poorly expressed and the expression of it can be improved. It's yeah, I, I don't know how I'm going to solve this one, because when you're demoing a game to somebody in person, I can use analogies. Right. So I can be saying to you, look, James, if I move this piece over here, yeah, and I move through this here, then it's, it's just like the doors in Star Trek, you know? Mm. Yeah, right, right, great. I can't do that in a rule book. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's say, a bit like this. Think about this. Imagine that. You know, in this TV show where this happens. <laughs> so, yeah, you can, you can you, the freedom... Of, of, of expression when doing a physical playthrough where you can act things out, you can use hand movements, you can move things around, you can do all of that. You can use analogies is yeah. great. And explaining a concept within a game. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because I don't personally believe that flavor text within the main body text of a rule book is a good thing to do. Mm. Flavor text when it's in a little side bit in a different font in italics or whatever great mm. but flavor text mixed in with actual rules is mm. not not something that i want to see i want to keep my flavor text to the side but that does mean i can't start using flowery flavor text to describe this particular situation mm. and if i did it would actually make it easier so i'm i'm at the moment i'm wrangling with i'm explaining the rule and then in brackets i'm putting a thematic explanation the rule so it's not quite flavor text but it is a thematic explanation for Very the rule but it's in brackets at the end of the sentence interesting and that's yeah it, it's that that's a kind of an unusual midway point because i know when we were editing uh magnate um, would end up just differentiating. Here's the flavor text. It's in a different font. Yes. It's very clearly different versus the kind of technical nature of the rules text. Yeah, I guess the problem is is that the rules text is has to be technical because there has to be a definitive way to read it. Yeah, there can't be a kind of multiple approximate set of interpretations like it's a poem or something yeah. like that's <laughs> yeah. not that's not what you can do. It has to yeah. be very clear what exactly is meant. Yeah, but the problem is is that. Actually, in terms of explanation, the thing I always find in terms of teaching games in general is that without thematic and analogy, everything is much more complicated, which mm -hmm. is why rulebook editing is difficult, right? Yep. Because it requires you to be technical about something that if you're verbally explaining, you can uh, work by analogy. Yeah. I mean, I, if I think about the way that you teach games, you have a very clear method for this. Um, it's very different. Yeah. It isn't like reading a rulebook out for, nope. for, for absolutely sure. It's nothing like that. No. So, uh, and, and just yesterday, I was talking to Jai about this, about the, the fact that I find it difficult when people try and explain games to me who are not used to explaining games, because what they do is they tend to say, um, well, in the game, you move the piece from here to here, and then you can draw one of these cards. And that's where they start. Yeah. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> whoa. Is this whoa. a cooperative game? What are we trying to do? Yeah. Are we try do how, how, does it last for 10 rounds or does it last when a marker reaches? Yeah. Tell me and that first. And they're so like, and they're like, oh yeah, it's a game about defeating a horde of invading robots yeah, and i'm like right, right. now <laughs> I mean, we know i need to know that first before yeah. before now, we can go into the that, that is similar in rule books in in terms of mm. structure you have to start with 
what the game's about. Yeah. Then you have to start with, uh, I mean, I always like to start with a little bit of flavor introduction. Mm. So a couple of paragraphs in italics of setting the theme of the game. It's the year 3000, whatever. Then I like to have a couple of paragraphs about what the game is. This is a cooperative game for two to five players where you are trying to do this, et cetera, et cetera. The game will last for, you know, four rounds. And then at the end of the four, four rounds, if your walls are still standing, you win the game. Right. Okay. So we've had the thematic flavor. Then mm. we've had the precise detail and straight away, right. I know, I know what the game is. I know how you win. And I know roughly how long it's going to last. And then we start diving into here's the list of components. Here's the setup. Mm. And then, and the, so in that respect, the teaching person will follow a similar structure. Mm because you start off with the with the high level and then you start going down into the detail. Um, but one of the things that I've been doing uh, recently, and some people won't like this, but this is a style choice. If, for example, a game has um, a number of rounds and in each round there are three phases. And in phase one, everybody draws two cards from a deck, right? So that's dead simple. In phase two, all players take an action. And then in phase three, you do cleanup. Mm. Okay, right. So the structure of the game is very simple. Three phases. I want to explain the, the, the overall structure of the game with those three phases first. Mm. When I start describing phase two, if there mm. are 10 different actions that you can do, I'm not going to explain them at that point in the rulebook. Yeah, yeah. All I'm going to say in the rulebook is in phase two, you will perform one of 10 actions. The actions are all explained, maybe even in the appendix. Yeah. Literally, I'm not going to put them in the middle of the rulebook because at that point in the rules, I want players to read, okay, phase one, draw cards, phase two, perform an action, phase three, do cleanup. Right. That's in my head. Yeah. yeah I don't completely. want to interrupt and say, phase two, you perform one of 10 actions. Right. I'm now going to spend six pages talking about those 10 actions. And then seven pages later, go, phase three, cleanup. It's like, what? No, no, no. Because by the time you've got to that page of the rulebook, you've forgotten that you're in a three-phase structure. So I wonder, that's really interesting in the perspective of how rule books meet how people mentally file things, because it's almost like that's a bit like a, what you end up with is something which is more usable when it's like a fractal pattern, mm -hmm. where there's this thing of like, first step, step is you have the structure of the game and that gives you a way to understand, okay, the overall, it's played in a series of repeating rounds and each round is phase one, phase two, phase three. And I've suddenly got a superstructure. Before I know anything else about the game, I'm sitting in the, about to play the game and I've got a sense of how my turn arc will be. Yes. And then you're next saying, right, well, we're not going to tackle what the 10 actions you can do in phase two are yet. We will have a set, when we get to that, we will explain that in, in uh, we will explain that in due course. Yeah. And that reflects a little bit, I think how people file information right. is what it seems to be. And I guess that's, that's partly what the art of writing a good rule book is, right? It's reflecting the way that information is filed yes but but at the same time remaining completely unambiguous yeah which a metaphorical approach can't do yeah yeah absolutely and yeah the amount of sentences of rules i've written which have then gone to other people and they've read it a different way i mean mm. i i read a rule yesterday and it was quite funny actually because i was on the discord channel where all of the play testers are and i read this rule and it said uh put a token on either side of the wall okay Right, yeah. Uh, and they said, but Paul, you, you need to mention that because there's only three tokens in the game, mm. you can only do that a maximum of three times. Yeah. And I'm like, what? I'm putting a token on either side of the wall. Yeah. So that's two tokens. 
Yeah. Yeah. So how can I, if there's only, surely I need six tokens. And they went, no, no, no. You put a token on either side of the wall. I went, oh. Uh, oh, as in both. As it, yeah, I, I was reading it as both. Whereas they were, oh. now I was the only person who interpreted that line as put a token on both sides of the wall. Oh, interesting. Everybody okay. else, and it could have been because I, I didn't have much sleep on Wednesday night, yeah. but everybody else interpreted as put a token on either yeah, side of the wall. And I interpreted one it- or the other. Yeah, yeah. And I interpreted it as put it on both sides of the wall. Right, interesting, yeah. And now, I, as I say, I was the only one that made that misinterpretation, but that meant I had to say, and I just changed the word either to one side of the wall, brackets, it doesn't matter which. Yeah, yeah, right, I see, yeah, yeah because that, that's, because it, that's unambiguous. Because that's if you yeah. put one side of the wall, players will go, which side of the wall? Yeah. So you have to say one side of the wall, and then I, ha I, I felt I needed to add the text to say, it doesn't actually matter which side of the wall you put the token on. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting how many people will read, as you say, a rule needs to be precise and clear mm. and un unambiguous. And I've had this with rules I've written. I've written it and I've gone, yeah, that's clear. You know, a couple of years ago, I learned uh, a lot about the word any. So if I say to you, James, right, there's a barrel in the corner. There's a barrel in the corner there. It's filled with yeah. apples. Go over there and get me any apple. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to get me one? Or, or, or are you going to get me the word any? Yeah. Is ambiguous. Oh, there are lots of situations in which I found this. Yes. Where it's, it's, it, it well, effectively, because it, it doesn't exactly mean all, but it can kind of mean all in exactly. some situations, right? Any and so, could mean all in some circumstances. Get me any, exactly, rather than, oh, yeah. So absolutely. I now say, go over there and get me any one apple. Yes, because it, then it, it's unambiguous. It's unambiguous. And it's funny because another rule book that I wrote uh, went to the backers a couple of weeks ago um, for feedback. And one of the backers came back and suggested removing the word one from that line because. Mm. Taking any one token is clear. Mm. And I went, no, it's not. <laughs> no. And that's exactly why. But it, it's interesting that I'd, I'd gone the extra mile and I'd, I'd put, take any one token. And some backer, one backer in particular, read it and said, you don't need to use the word one because by saying take any token, that infers. And I'm like, no, no, no. Language is, is, is easily misinterpreted. And we haven't even touched on translation issues. Oh my God. Well, I'm actually going to say, I'm, I had a whole set of questions on translation, but I'm going to park those for now yeah. because I'm really hoping that obviously we'll get a chance to do this again. Yeah. So that's one of the ones we can, we can do part two next time. Absolutely. The thing I really wanted to get into that I'm really, really excited to get your opinion on because it's, it's a passionate area for me is around the role of evolving how we teach games. Right. In particularly around uh, the, the development that we've seen in the last few years of tutorials. Yes. So you know that I have put one into Magnate. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, I did something which I've recently been playing with um, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion. Oh. And I've been going through the tutorial to that. And, yeah. I'm, and, try, and, and I'm picking that. Uh, I first came across it several years back with Fog of Love, yeah. which had one. So um, where are we going with this? Are, are rule books in the current form going to be obsolete at some point? No. Okay. No, we're, we're going to have, we're going to still have rule books. Mm. Um, but the number of games that are now using a walkthrough, mm. first game, read this first, demo, whatever. Yeah. It's brilliant. And so different, different ones have done it different ways. 
Um, that, you know, there are ways to do it where it is literally scripted. Mm. So you've got like a four page, read this first booklet and it says, right, set up the game. Now this player, uh, and, and I've, I've just actually done something like this a couple of weeks ago. Me and a friend of mine uh, got the Middle Earth collectible card game from 1995, right? This is a really, really oh, old wow. card game. Wow. Now, one of the problems with that game is it was very, very inaccessible because the rule book was really, really complicated. And we found that in, I think, 98 or 99, the company who made it released what's called a starter set for the game. It was the last thing they released before the game then got cancelled because it was just prior to the films coming out, at which point they didn't have the license anymore. Okay, ah, so that's why the game got wrapped up. But anyway, we found a starter set and we were playing it and we managed to find the starter set walkthrough that came with the game. And it was 100% scripted, literally even down to the dice rolls. Wow. Okay? So it, it told you to stack your decks in a certain order. It then talked you step by step through all of the phases of the game and told you, right, at this point, you need to draw two cards. You have now drawn this card. Notice that your opponent has just moved through a wilderness, so you should play this card on them. Uh, they then choose to fight the spiders. They roll dice, they rolled a seven. So this is what happens. Right, and what, yeah. what me and a friend of mine did is we played through this entire game on Tabletop Simulator, following the scripted walkthrough. We made zero choices whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. Right. We literally just followed what we were doing, uh, reading from the book and, and going through the steps and moving the cards around. By the end of it, we knew how to play the game. Yeah. Okay. That was the best way to learn that game. Yeah. And that was 100% scripted with no player decisions. Now, Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion has done it slightly differently. What it's done is, is it's split the learning up into five, your first five scenarios. It teaches you the basic rules and then says, right, off you go, go and play them. Then it teaches the next bit of rules and says, now go and play them. So it is giving you the choice. You feel that you're playing the game. Yeah. But any game that uses that kind of approach, for me, gets, gets a thumbs up. And I know you've done it with, with, with Magnate yeah. because some people will not need that. Some people will read the rule book and go, right, I now know how to play the game and they'll go and play it. And other people will want to sit down with your walkthrough manual and, and go through that step by step. And yeah. so what you've done is you have reduced the barrier to entry to your mm -hmm. game. And that's got to be a good thing. But how much time and effort did it take? Oh, God, it was, yeah. it was a monstrous exactly. amount of time. It was um, months and months of development work in early of last year. It was absolutely brutal. Uh, it was the, the, the toughest single piece of design that I had to do in the entire process, yeah. probably. And it was optional. And yeah, and it was optional because we, we didn't need to do it. No. But I, I felt that, that this is really interesting thinking about where tutorials might be applicable. It felt like Magnate has a couple of mechanics that are, I don't think they're horrendously difficult to understand, but they present enough of a barrier, I yes. think, in themselves that even a rule book explanation of them, they're the kind of thing where you'd read a page and go, what? okay, yeah. yeah, and then you play it and you go, oh, I see it now. Yeah. But until you've seen it played, you'll 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 probably think be a bit of being a bit of a head scratch. Exactly, exactly. So so to being able to demonstrate that and get that over. Also, you know, I just aware that so many games we saw before they're sitting on people's shelves for so long, mm -hmm. and I know that the the fact that I have to read a rule book first before I can just start playing makes me slightly less likely to play something every time. 
and that just thinking, you know what, I could get the new game, I could unseal it and then begin playing it with my friends straight away without yeah. any prep. Yeah. Just seems like a very attractive prospect to me. And I guess to that, the slightly wider circle of people. Yep. Because one of the things I'm really aware of is that, you know, if you spend a lot of time on BGG or a lot of time in the industry, by their nature, most people have heavier skewing tastes. Yes. And they're super tolerant of reading rule books and they're yep. super tolerant of that sort of thing because they have to do it. Yeah. But if you're if I'm with people who are more casual, they're the kind of people that don't play many board games, play Magnate, they instantly recognize elements of it. They're like, oh, it's a bit like Monopoly. Yeah. Uh, and actually they're making strategic decisions before the end of their first game. Yeah. So it's like, it's obviously not fundamentally too difficult for them to learn and play and get a lot out of, even though it's a pretty big looking yeah. game. But I just, I just felt like I want to get people to that point. Yeah. So rapidly, right? Yeah. And it, it's interesting because as you say, the board game hobby that we know, mm. every board gamer that I know, I'll say every, mm. 90% yeah. are on BGG. Yeah. yeah. Right? How, what percentage of gamers in the world are on BGG? Not many. Uh, a few percent. Probably. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because if we're talking about the untapped, well, not the untapped market, but the market of family yeah. games, yeah. The, the, the ticket to ride, the Catans, the code yeah. names, 90% of the people who buy those games have never heard of BGG. No, no they have no idea what it is. They need a rule book. Yeah. It's like, oh, I bought this game. The last game I bought was, you know, Monopoly Exeter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and if that rule book, yeah, yeah. If, if they bought Magnate yeah. without your walkthrough book, yeah. they would take one look at the rule book, they'd start to read it, and it would go back in the box. However, the walkthrough booklet, they'll be like, oh, okay, right. And I think what would be great is if they say to their friends, oh, we've, we've got this new game, it looks a bit more complicated than Monopoly, but, yeah. you know, come round, it's got one of these walkthroughs, we can sit down, we can try it, and we will know at the end of that whether this is a kind of game that we're going to like or not. Yeah. Completely. So it reduces not only the barrier to them learning how to play the game, it reduces the barrier to them even trying the game out because there's a few people I know, uh, the, the few people that I know in the world though who are not gamers, they're a bit scared. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not just, oh, I can't be bothered learning it. It's oh, that's too hard work, and, and, and that's for people who play those games, and I, I, I'm not good enough for that. And if you can just make the game approachable and say, look, you'll be fine, then, yeah. then that's good. Yeah, completely. Well, this is my, my, my sincere hope for it, um, is that this, this, it takes the form of a deck, actually. Uh, it's yeah. like a deck of tarot-sized cards that hopefully will, will, will do that. It, it, how many games are you seeing that coming your way in terms of editing work that, are, that have a tutorial element to them? Oof. Is it still quite small or is it? It is yeah. quite small. Interesting. Yeah, it, it is quite small. Um, and I think I need to be starting to recommend it more. Interesting. Uh, as a, because going back to what we were saying earlier on, when people hire me to be a rulebook editor, mm. they get all of my other stuff bundled in that. Yeah, And I exactly. think what I need to be doing is I need to be saying to people, have you considered some kind of, you know, tutorial or walkthrough for this game. I mean, I haven't even considered it for Weather Machine. I'm working on the Weather Machine rulebook right now mm. with Vita Lacerda, and I, I haven't even considered that. And I don't know if I should. Yeah, because- It must be difficult to decide what are the right projects for it. Right? Yeah, because it, as you say, it's a huge amount of work, but also yeah. the target audience for Vita Lacerda's games, mm. none of his other games have had walkthroughs or introductions, whereas Burn Cycle is going to have one. 
The yeah. other rulebook I'm working on at the moment for Chip Theory Games, Burn Cycle, is going to have in the back of the rulebook, and we're going to reference it at the start, if you want to just see how the game plays, here's like four or six pages at the back of the rulebook with, it's kind of like an example first turn, mm. but it's actually more is going to be explaining what happens, explaining the different steps and actually seeing it being played out. And I think mm. the plan is to write it in such a way that you can physically set up the game to match the images and physically play oh, through and it. Play it through. And, yep. and, and play it through just to see how it works out. Um, a little bit maybe like the, the Middle Earth card game thing, where it is just literally we were moving the pieces around as the text told us to do so. Yeah, so that, and that's very interesting. And I guess the advantage of doing the advantage of doing a book uh, over, say, a deck of cards is that the book you can have those quite big graphical examples yeah. in. Yeah, because the, the biggest problem I think I faced on the the deck of cards for this was that you had to just describe things really well yeah. because obviously you couldn't have yeah, there's a few pictures, but there's not a lot of space. You can't have yeah. a whole diagram. Uh, it obviously gave us other advantages because it meant we could do things like during the game when we're accelerating it, the scripting bit, mm -hmm. we give it, everyone draws their own secret card from the deck and they know what actions they're going to perform right, over the next right, round yeah. and that sort of thing. So it's a bit more flexible in some ways. And if obviously it's nice it being bite-sized, like people don't feel like there's too much being explained yep. at once. Yep. But it, but certainly uh, that that's an interesting challenge there. Ah, it's a fascinating one picking them because the v Vital Asserters games are, uh, I haven't, well, other than Escape Plan, which mm -hmm. you taught me, um, oh, it must be almost two or three, three years, years back now. Ago now yeah. yeah, exactly. Other than that, I've not played any of his other games. Right. Because to be completely honest, um, even though some of them look amazing, like the recent version of Kanban EV, yeah. I look at that and I'm like, oh, oh, that looks up my street. But I am a little bit intimidated by them, to be yeah. completely honest. Even yeah. as someone who <laughs> designs yeah. games that are not light, uh, I look at them and I think, oh, you know what? If, if you just told me there was a tutorial, I would be much more on board with this yeah. than, than having to wade my way through the through the rule book, even yeah. when it's a very well-written rule book. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Okay, well, um, we've been talking for quite a while we now have. already. We have. It's been but the time has flown by. So it does. Uh, before we um before we uh what I'd like to just is a move on before we end to some listener questions. Yes. So they got a chance to do that because I'm sure there's loads of other things we can talk about in future in another episode. Um so uh, I've got lots of people have sent me their questions. I'm sure lots of people are just as interested in in picking your brains as okay. I've been. So um, what I'm going to start with, I'm going to get the Jaffa cake questions out of the way first. Right, okay. Because those are always the classic ones. The most important ones. Because at some point along the line, your love of yeah. Jaffa cakes became something of a, a meme in the board game industry. Um, but but I'm obviously really keen to get into the more practical questions where, where certainly publishers, aspiring game makers could could learn a few kind of yeah. useful tips, that kind of thing. So um, the, the, the first question on Jaffa Cakes is, of course, are they cakes or are they biscuits? So they go hard when you leave them out in the open. I think that means they are cakes. Yes, I believe that was HMRC's ruling on them as well yes. when it came to the VAT case <laughs> on Jaffa Cakes. So that makes sense. And then the second question is, um, what are your thoughts on different flavours, e.g. cherry or lime? Right, so the cherry ones are amazing. The strawberry ones are good. Uh, the pineapple ones were better than I expected. The passion fruit ones, I had one of them and gave the rest of the pack to Vicky. Um, <laughs> so no, uh, no, not a strong vote for passion fruit. <laughs> the passion fruit ones... Yeah, I didn't like them at all. Well, I'm very glad that I've managed to ask you those questions and that uh, I've got both very direct on-brand answers along along with the very on-brand Jaffa Cake-related questions. So um, the, the next question I'm, I'm going to move on straight to is, is about rule books. And the next one is, uh, have you ever encountered a rule book that needs such an overhaul that you just wanted to shred it to pieces instead? Yes. 
and yeah. have done so <laughs> virtually. Um, there, there are a few rule books which I have uh, been a consultant on where literally they said, Paul, we're going to pay you for one day of your time mm. to read through our rule book and then give us your honest evaluation. Okay. And on a couple of occasions, I have said, you need to start from square one. You, you need to start back at scratch because the entire rule book, every part of it is a disaster. The, the whole structure is a disaster. But as I read each individual section, it was in shorthand. Right. Every, every section I, I, I wrote, I, every section I read was written from the point of view of, you already know how to play this game, and I'm just going to remind you of a rule in shorthand. So it's almost more like designer notes than it, really it was, being a rule book. Well, it, it was in PDF. It had images. It had layout. Oh, right? okay. But when you read it, it was like, yeah, so in the movement part of the turn, each player moves their figure across the board. Right. How many spaces? Well, equal to their move value, but it didn't say that. Can you move through other people? Oh, yeah, you can move through them, but you can't end the space on them. Right. It didn't say that. It literally just had short notes. So there's been a couple of rule books I had like that. In fact, three in the last six months where I have provided one day's worth of consultancy work on them, all three of those were, you really need to start from scratch with this rule book again. Um, so, yeah, I have had that. I've also had ones where uh, they gave me the job of editing. And the first thing I did was start a brand new document, not even take the existing document and start moving it around, but actually start a brand new document and then start copying and pasting bits of text in and editing them as I went, because I felt that the, the, the structure just, um, you know, just, just wasn't there. So, yeah, I, I've, I've had that. And I've had, I've had other rule books where it literally just needed half a day's worth of proofreading and minor grammar, and then it was mostly okay. So. Well, well, thank you to Tom for that question, because that I think is quite illuminating again, in terms of just making how clear how varied the work is yeah. from the point of view of the very different processes you're applying to very different yeah. rule books and, and what you get on the kind of input to that as well. Uh, so John asks, um, what's a kind of red flag that a rule book is going to be really poorly written when you first encounter it? What's the kind of biggest red flag, I guess? those things that I just described. Mm. Um, I, I normally get a fairly good impression early on. Um, I mean, yeah, when, when I start reading through it, I, I, will get an, I will get an initial impression straight away mm. just, just from the way it's written. And I'm not talking here about language. If, they, if they're not using Oxford commas and there's the occasional spelling mistake, I don't care at this stage. Yeah. I'm looking for the actual content in there um, and it is, it's a combination of things. It's a combination of too much information. Front loading is a big problem in rule books. This mm. is, this, we could, if we're going to do part two of this next month, yeah. front loading of information, we can have a whole out half hour's discussion about that. Yeah. But it's one of the big problems that I see in rule books, even ones that come out, but that, that is a red flag for me. Now it's a red flag for me. And the, one of the rule books that I'm working on at the moment had 12 pages of front loading information before it then got into how to play the game. Mm. And I said to the publisher, how much, how much editing permission are you giving me for this rule book? And they went, you have full control. And I went, thank you very much mm. because I'm gonna remove that 12 pages of front loading information. I've now got it down to two. Now, I don't like any front loading of information, but unfortunately this game, there are some very important concepts you needed to have early, but I have 
kept it to the bare minimum. But before that, it was literally 12 pages of here's loads and loads and loads of detail about very, very detailed stuff before we've yeah. explained how you set it up. And that was just that was just too much. So yeah, it, 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 it's a problem which I, it, it's not a red flag as in I won't work on this. It's a red flag as in <clears throat> this is a big problem that you need to do something about. Make, makes total sense. And I, I can, I know lots of rule books that I've experienced uh, where there is a lot of straight, strangely structured with lots of upfront about that kind of conceptual stuff that I'm like, I don't, yeah. I don't care yet. This doesn't seem like it's very helpful yeah. at this stage. So Mike asks, why don't more rule books use uh, indexes to help facilitate <laughs> finding keyword information? Yeah. So indexes is not a thing that I generally use. Mm. But uh, in the last six months, I've been starting to come round to the idea of having more indexes in them. So some, some real books have indexes. Fantasy Flight Games books generally have indexes. Um, sometimes indexes go too far. You know, I've, I've seen some games with indexes which is just like, you'd never, you'd never look that up in the index. That's, you know, an index should be, a player is like, they've got a rule like adjacency. Mm. What, what does adjacent mean? And rather than flipping through the rulebook to find where the rules on adjacency are, what they should do is they should be able to go to the index, adjacency, page three, go to page three, right? Mm. That, that's fine. That's a good example of an index. A bad example of an index is putting something like game setup in the index, right? Because nobody would go to yeah. the index to yeah, see where's yeah, yeah. game setup. You'd go to the contents page. To see where game setup was. Yeah, completely. Um, but yeah, so index is an interesting one because some of the rule books that I've been working on in the last few years don't have indexes. Vital Lacerda's rule books don't have indexes. I'm considering suggesting to him that we put an index in Weather Machine. And that will be the first index in a Vital Lacerda rule book. And is that because they're potentially amenable to it because you've got quite a large number of keywords and those sort of things that come up? Uh, it, uh, it's not just that. It's just mm. the fact that I've been coming more and more around to... So I personally don't use indexes that often. Mm. But over the last year, year and a half, I've heard a lot of feedback from people to say they find indexes really useful. So a little bit like what you did with the Magnate tutorial walkthrough thing. Mm. It wasn't needed. It was an optional extra that you did in order to help the people who would find that useful. Yeah. If, if creating an index is going to be four hours more work on a hundred hour job, it's worth it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to suggest- Especially with that kind of time commitment, right? Yeah. Like we, we, four hours. The, the, the danger is, so one of the components of Weather Machine is the research tiles. Mm. So do I have research tiles in the index? Well, you mm. would think yes. But then what do I do? Do I put every page that research tiles are mentioned on, which are about 10? So I'm, mm -hmm. that, that's the thing. It's not just yeah. a case of, oh, you should have an index. It's like, Yes, well, I should have an index, but what do I do? Do I do research tiles? How you get them? Page 12, how you spend them? Well, that's on page, there's four different ways you can spend them. So I'm like, I, yeah, I'm not quite sure where I go on that. And Vittel might say, no, he might say, no, Paul, we've got the contents page. And that's actually got, a that's got the breakdown of where everything is. So, yeah. It's indexes. a different one. I mean, I mean, indexes are, are a pain point. I know in a lot of academic publishing, working yep. out what you do with them, and it, and it's effectively the same kind of problem. Which, yep. as you said, is like, well, how are you going to choose what goes in those, what doesn't? Yeah. The 
overstuff the index, you just end up with a replication of a lot of the book and it's no longer useful as an index, right? It's, it's like you have to somewhat deselect what goes in there to make it useful. Yes, yeah. Uh, and, we do, and those are kind of always always um, pain point problems. So I think the last question we're going to have time for today, um, or save the others for another time, um, is from Liam. So it's ignoring grammar and spelling, mis spelling mistakes. What are the three biggest mistakes that people make when writing and editing rule books, and how are they best avoided? So front loading information, <laughs> which, we, yeah. which we've just talked about. Yeah. Um, which yeah, for those people who who don't know, it's basically a lot of information at the start of a rule book which you do not need at that time. Mm. It's important. It's very important that you know it to play the game, but it's putting it in the right part of the rule book and not right at the start. Um, so that, that's, that's one, one thing that's there. Um, two, the other thing is potentially breaking up the flow of your rule book with going off on side tangents when something could be subsectioned out and, and moved on. Mm. Uh, like I mentioned earlier on with the actions, you know, you don't want to break up the middle of your rule book with 10 pages detailing all of the actions when you could put all of the actions in an appendix at the back of the rule book and then just, you know. Mm. Uh, and I think the third one is a lack of examples. Now, most of the rule books that I read have a lot of good examples with images, mm. but some rule books don't give enough space for that. Uh, and you, you need to. Um, but I also don't want to see silly examples. I don't want to see, um, you know, if, if you if you take three apples to the fair, you gain three points. For example, James right, takes three yeah. apples to the fair and gains yeah, three points. Yeah, yeah. No, right? I don't want to see yeah. that. But what I want to see is at the end of the game, all players will score one point for every three apples they have. For example, James has seven apples. He gets two points. Yeah. Right. Okay. Because it would say round down in the text. You see an example of it happening, but where the example exactly matches word for word what the text is, then it, it, it's not useful. So, yeah, examples, lots of them, but but good ones. So where they're genuinely disambiguating, they're not just re repeating text, and effectively they are there to, to. There should be some intuition behind their design around anything that wouldn't be incredibly obvious just from reading the text is where you want examples right? yeah if we're talking about examples and this is another another bit of a mistake that i do see is never ever put rules in an example so the example i've just given you mm. was an example of doing it wrong so i say at the end right. of the game yeah, yeah. each player scores one point for every three apples they have yeah full stop yeah example james has seven apples he scores two points you needed the example to know whether you needed to round down or not. And right, that is wrong. Okay. That text should have yeah, said yeah. rounded down. Yeah. Okay. Never ever put a rule only in an example because an example should be optional. Right. You shouldn't completely. need to read an example in order to be able to understand the rules. And you do see this. You, you see this occasionally. It's not often, but you do see it that you're reading the rules and you get the rules and then you read an example and the example there's another rule in the example that wasn't described in the actual rules text. And you're like, oh, right, okay. So I can move through my friends, for example, you know, so. Right, this is, because actually, you, yeah, you're, you're hiding rules in the examples when yeah. really you need to have a clear differentiation between this is a rule and it's yeah. part of the continuous text. This is a, uh, a tool for illustrating a rule. Exactly. So yeah. you don't don't copy the text word for word, but you-, you Yeah, because then the example 
probably superfluous if that's exactly yeah you never put something in an example that hasn't actually been covered in the rules yeah completely it makes a tremendous amount of sense um okay great well i'm sure that will be very practically useful to anyone who's interested in making their own games um so we're close to wrapping up now um what should we be on the lookout for from gaming rules coming up soon or um Oof. coming up soon when are you planning this podcast to go out so this will be going out um, uh, in uh, late April. Late April. Mm. So by then, the Keeper at Sea rules video will be out. Mm. Because Keeper ah, okay. at Sea is an expansion set to Keeper, uh, designed by Richard Breeze. Oh, and right, yes. Yeah. He's going on Kickstarter on the 19th of April. Uh, so I will have the, vi the video will be finished next week in preparation for that. Uh, it has a, so if, if you've got Keeper, if you've played Keeper and you like Keeper, it is an expansion to that, but it also has a solo mode in the game uh, designed by David Turtsey, obviously, because he's the, he's the, I think, I think there's a contract that's been made that he now designs the solo games for every single game in existence. I think, I think, that, <laughs> I think that's the deal he's made. Um, uh, oh yeah, he designs a phenomenal number of solo modes, doesn't he? I mean, had does. a wonderful chat with him in Essen about, uh, about getting some advice for solos, which is very yeah. useful for me. Yeah um yeah so, yeah so that that's coming amount. out uh what else have i got coming out by the by the end of april i can't i can't actually remember let me just stop and look at my calendar i can tell you that my my workload for april uh has changed i mean we've discussed work work changing things before mm, so mm. the things that i did have planned for april have actually now been sort of delayed moved around and everything else but mm. the weather machine rule book with vita lacerda i'm working on people are not going to see that anytime soon mm. The burn cycle rulebook with chip theory games again. People are not going to see that anytime soon. Um, I a lot, will a lot be, of preparation probably then yeah. for lots of upcoming stuff and different different videos. Yeah, I will be working on the how to play videos for Stefan Fell's two new games, uh, Hamburg and Amsterdam. They won't be finished by the end of April, but they will be. They will be hopefully sometime in May. Uh, I'm working on one of David a video for uh, Procyon, Defense of Procyon Three, which is David Turtz's games. And lots of other playthroughs. I'm, I'm doing playthroughs generally two to three times a week at the moment on the channel. So uh, there's lots of them coming out. I have. Well, I understand you've been doing quite a lot of that as part of your. You've been because I know your. Uh, you've been as you've been kind of pushing your Patreon, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, the your uh, you've been doing more kind of playthroughs and been able yeah. to balance that a bit more versus just doing rulebook stuff all the time. Yeah. Right? This is this has been probably the biggest change to uh, my channel and my life over the last mm. couple of years. Is the patron support is basically, it provides me the financial flexibility to take time off my paid work, okay? So yeah. I, I have always said that the Patreon support is for the other stuff that I do. I don't want people to support me on Patreon for the rulebook work that I do, because I get paid to do the rulebook work. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I also, I'm, I'm not ideally wanting people to support me on Patreon to fund the sponsored videos that I do, mm. because, they've already been paid for. Now, I know other people do that. I just I just don't feel comfortable about it. So for me, the Patreon campaign is to fund all of the other stuff that I don't normally get paid for. And the biggest change to the channel is because the Patreon has been fairly successful over the last couple of years, it enables me to take X number of days off a week during which I produce mm. content or yeah, yeah. do things like this, this podcast. So for example, this weekend, this weekend is virtual bacon. This will have been and gone by the time this podcast comes out. But I am doing over the next three days seven live streams of different games, none of which are paid for, none of which yeah. are sponsored. And it is it is the patron support that funds that because sure, I'm doing it at a weekend, 
but I've actually spent approximately two days of my life in the last month planning and organizing all of this. Of course. And, and it's all yeah. of that planning and preparation that's gone into it. So yeah, there's, there's lots of videos come up, coming up this weekend, but by the time this goes out from now, there will be about 10 more videos on my channel of games that I'm playing. Um, well, I mean, I mean, that's going to say right, right away. I, I want to say to the listeners then, look, if it means backing Paul's Patreon means that actually uh, he does podcasts with me, then please do that. Because <laughs> that's how I, that, yeah. that, that, that I think is, I, well, I think that's great. Now, I think that that's really, really important. Well, you know, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's really great. I feel like I get a tremendous amount of value out of your out of your patron to be honest well, so thank you very much it, it, it's it's giving something back and it, it's really nice because the patreon channel and this is a whole other topic for another time because when i launched the patreon i did so because so many other people had launched a patreon and mm. it was like oh well maybe i should as well right yeah. and i didn't really know what to expect from it and it started out fairly small and back then i don't even think i was live streaming because i did I, I didn't have the i didn't have a good internet whereas now a couple of years on the patreon is very important to me and i just want to give more back um and i'm and, I, and i'm constantly enthusiastic about doing more stuff for the channel covering more things playing more games and everything else and it isn't just oh well the patreon people are paying me this amount of money therefore i need to treat it like i need to give something back it's it's not that it's more, this is actually encouraging me and, and stuff like that. And of course, patron supporters get to vote on which games I'm going to be playing and what they want to see and things like that. Sometimes it's the ones that I want to play, but very often it, it's, you know, the other day, um, one of my patron supporters had just bought a game and went online and said, oh, Paul, you've, you've not done a tutorial of this game. How am I going to learn how to play it? And I was like, well, what are you doing next Wednesday? Do you, want, do, you want, do you want to play it? And we did. And we actually did. We did a live stream and it, and it was a live stream for patron supporters. So it wasn't a live stream that went public, but it was a live stream. And then we got somebody else who said, who else on, on the Patreon Slack channel wants to learn how to play this game? And they went, oh yeah, I'll play it as well. So all of a sudden, I, you know, I did, I did a live private stream for some patron supporters of me teaching some other patron supporters how to play a particular game. And it, it's nice. And at no point in that did I feel, well, they're giving me money every month. I really should give something back. It, yeah. it didn't feel like that at all. It was, they are helping me have the lifestyle that I want. Yeah. I, I, I want to do this. And of course, I got to teach people how to play games, which, you know, <laughs> I love doing yeah. anyway. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're, and, the, we're... and they sent me a pack of Jaffa cakes in the post. So yeah. yeah. Oh, as long as, <laughs> as long as they see the Jaffa cakes, that's critical, right? Absolutely yeah. fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I just want to say thank you so much again uh, for joining me. This has been so much fun. It's been tremendous going through all of those things. There's so many things that I really want to talk about that we had to leave off. So we can do a part two. I would love to do a part we, two. We can absolutely do a part two. We'll give, we'll give some of the other people a chance to be on the show. But yeah, at some point when you want to come back for part two, we do need, though, for part two, mm. to remind ourselves what we've talked about here. Because otherwise, we'll just talk about the same stuff again. So, Oh, don't worry. I will make a list. <laughs> um, we, and I'm sure we won't be short of topics. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. No, it's been, uh, it's been a pleasure. You know me, I always like to chat about rule books and stuff. Because coming on to a podcast like this and talking about it for two hours actually helps me as well mm. because what it's done is it's actually got more things going around in my mind and it's the classic case where if you're just doing the job all day every day and not stopping yeah. to reflect on what you're doing yeah then you're not improving so talking to you and getting questions from the listeners um 
you know, has been useful. And just talking through some of the things again, you know, I, you know, people say, oh, Paul, yeah, he's, he's like a really, really good rulebook editor. And I say, no, I'm, I'm always improving. I'm always looking for, you know, where we can get better, where we can improve and things like that. So yeah, it's been good. Producing Fun is produced by Naylor Games. If you enjoyed the show, follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, or other major podcasting platforms. Remember, Producing Fun is also a product, and it thrives on feedback. So please leave a review wherever possible, or simply send me your feedback directly. You can message me on Twitter, at Naylor James, or write me an email, james at naylorgames.com. Until next time.